Yeah, he's paying extra, buddy. <laughs> Blessed you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Adonai, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and in the mouth of your people, the family of Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Blessed you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who selected us from all the peoples and gave us his Torah. Blessed you, Adonai, giver of the Torah. Tonight's class is dedicated to my sons-in-law, one of which is working too hard to be here. One's here, one's there. Does I give him a bye? I don't think so. Well, before we start, a, a shout out to uh, Nelson, Georgia, for passing a law that mandates that all their citizens in their small little town must own a firearm. Hoorah. And a, a shameless call out to Stockton, California, for consistently electing fools, looking to have your ears tickled, and having to declare bankruptcy. Unbelievable. Our Supreme Court is hearing arguments on DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, and on Proposition 8 in California to determine if uh, marriage uh, should be redefined. So I wanted, to, uh, I wanted to talk about that. And I told a client on the phone today that I'd be talking about that tonight and that I'd be arguing for the homosexual side and that uh, I was going to ask you guys to, to argue the uh, homophobic side <laughs> and that... Uh, and that I... <laughs> And I really didn't know. That's right. That's right. Test, test. Is this on? So I didn't know if it was uh, how the class was going to go. But it occurred to me that uh, it really didn't make sense since there's probably only three or four men in the room that can speak halfway intelligently on marriage. So, so I wanted to I wanted to review for those that have been married longer than most of the people in the room. I wanted to review for everyone else some pointers after you're married. So I'm expecting that you men who have been married for a time will already know these. They are straight from the scripture. I'm going to give you 25 points that a man should know about marriage. 25 points. If you're not taking notes, why would you be, why would you be just sucking on coffee? No, you've been married longer than I have. You should be up here, not me. So while the uh, young men run around looking for ways to take, uh, to take notes, we'll, uh, we'll wait and see what happens. Don't, Christian, don't try to write all this on your leg. This, I mean, you'll run out of room, man. That's good. 
That's good. Tweet these over time. Claim them as your own. They were actually written by the king of the universe. These are not original. They are straight from the scripture. I do actually have references for every single one of these 25. I'm not going to give you the references. That's part of your homework. Well, I'm going to do them somewhat chronologically according to the concealed carry handgun training class. Good. Always a good thing to use. Yes, I like that. You get extra credit for that, actually. So again, I'm going to do these uh, chronologically from in, in the Word of God. So if you're familiar with... How many of you read the Bible? Okay, almost 100%. That's good. So uh, I'm going to read them uh, in my own understanding of them. So if you search for exactly what I say, you probably are not going to find it in the Word of God. This is the Targum. Yes, that's exactly... Thank you, sir. Targum Yosef. Targum Yosef, right. So uh, you should, if, if you know the Word of God, you should be able to kind of follow along mentally with, uh, with these. So um, here's, here's a good one to start off with. This is number one. A man should become one flesh with his wife. Now you may think, well, that's kind of obvious. But I can tell you that over time, that does tend to wane. You get very accustomed to your wife. You get very accustomed to the fact that she's around. You get a routine going. And this one flesh thing becomes very spiritual and less physical as time goes by. And as a married man with 30 years experience, I want to encourage you that this speaks of a physical relationship as well as a spiritual relationship and you should endeavor to do what it takes to encourage that. Number two, a man should acknowledge his wife is beautiful before he's concerned about it getting him killed. So something's coming to mind. You, you know the scripture, and uh, I actually have uh, several there. But I, I think it's important that we recognize that our wives need to hear that we appreciate their looks. Most of us are attracted to our wives physically first, and then emotionally spiritually and whatnot, second. And this, I think, is by God's design. This is not a bad thing. That's why girls are pretty. But I, I do think it's important that we make sure that they know that we think they're pretty. And you know what? It's really easy in the first five years. But as men, after about five years or so, we have already told them, how many times do you need to hear it? You know I think you're pretty. And we stop saying it. And I want to encourage you young men. It doesn't matter how many times you've said it. They always need to hear it. Just like you need to hear 
that they're proud of you. Doesn't matter how many times. Not to be critical of any group that would be known with letters, three letters. But there is a there is a homeschool type organization that promotes the idea that women just need to be women and makeup or whatever, dressing nice or whatever else is charm is deceitful, beauty is passing. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. And when we say those words to our wives, we need to re- reflect on the fact that it's not saying that women are not beautiful. Or that the older you get, you're no longer... That's not what it's saying. Right. It's, it's, it's classical Hebrew parallelism, where it's showing that in comparison to looks, a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Yes. It's not to diminish her looks. Yes. In fact... If you read the commentary on that very verse, the sages say the opposite. They say this should be a reflection upon her beauty as well. Absolutely. And, and I know you've seen that. You come across a woman, young or old, who has a wisdom in the scriptures and a love for God, and she radiates. And she could be 50, 60, 70 years old, and she's still amazingly beautiful. That inner beauty shines out. Thank you. Please share more, uh, all of you married men. Number three, a man should know where his wife is. That's it, baby. iPhone. I think I, the answer is yes, and that's a great an, that's a great question, Brock. Uh, first, physically, yeah, I think uh, of uh, several stories. The first one I think of, of course, is is with Adam and Chava. Where was Adam when she was conversing with the serpent? The scripture doesn't tell us. Was he sitting right there? Was he leaning against a different tree? Don't know. He knows where his wife is? At that point, I don't think so. A little problem there. We should know where our wife is. I'm sorry? She's naked at the same time. (laughs) And a man should always know where his wife is naked. That's right. Okay, so I think that... uh, I think if you check out Genesis... I think if you check out Genesis 18, you may get another perspective. But we always need to know where our wives are. This leads to the whole protection, the priesthood, and and provision deal. Um, But I think that on this particular point, I could talk to you for 60 minutes. So lest I miss the other 22... A man should always know where his wife is. Where she is physically, where she is spiritually, where she is emotionally. And I can tell you, as I just said, to me, this one should probably be top shelf. This one means that you know the status of your flock. 
This one means that you know the temperature of your marriage. This one means that nothing will take you by surprise. Gentlemen, I speak to this one as a man who has been through the fire. When I had been married three years, I looked at my wife, absolutely, stunningly attractive young woman. I've got an apartment. It's not bad. Pretty sweet. We're making okay money. She's a great cook. We have a great relationship. I turned to her one day and I said, Sweetie, are you happy? And she looked at me. And she said, Happy? Happy? Are you kidding? If I didn't believe divorce was a sin, I wouldn't be here. And she walked away. Guys, I didn't know where my wife was. And I almost lost my marriage. A man needs to know where his wife is. I would also add that one of the most troubling times that I had was when I allowed my wife to go on a mission trip. And so, while I knew where she was, the physical side of it, of not being in my presence, not being under my protection, troubled me greatly. Yeah, I hear you. Number four, a man should be serious about faith issues with his sons-in-law. Yeah. Not a daughter-in-law? I specifically wanted to bring up the scriptural aspect, but I, 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 I can't speak... I can't speak to the daughters-in-law yeah, yet. yet. Um, but, of course, of course, yes. Um, it, it Generically, I think you raise the point that I should probably rephrase this, that a man should be serious about faith issues with his children. My faith is the most important thing in my life. Exactly. Exactly. So there's a disconnect, right? You know, it's a, it's like playing post office there. There's a, there's a, a mediator, an in between. But yeah, still, um, I, I'm serious. I'm serious about what I believe, and I'm serious about doing it with excellence. And if there's anything I want to communicate, it's that seriousness. Number five, these are all from the scripture. This is not the Squitcherini marriage book. Oh, is that Lot? I just got it. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, son. It was Lot, Genesis 19.14. Lot, thank you, yes. Number five, a man should teach his wife contentment and godliness. Now, if you jump to the book of Galatians, chapter 5, it's clear that Paul is of the impression that godliness with contentment is great gain. But it's important that we teach our wives contentment 
and godliness. We need to teach that. They're not going to get it by osmosis. They're not going to get it by mistake. It's hard to teach what you don't know. a good point. I like it. There you go. <clears throat> Please. That's a very good point because I have taught in church a lot of young married type classes and and I took I took for granted that they know things and finally I had a couple a husband raise his hand and goes, You you don't understand. My wife and I are the foundation of our family. It starts right here with us. We had no parents to teach us anything. So I took it for granted yeah. that they knew stuff, Good. and they did not. You bet. So they were learning, and so it was very difficult for that couple to talk because they were learning. Sure. The very but that's what this class is all about, right? It's not the Joe show. It's not that I've arrived. It's that I'm surrounded by godly men, and I'm surrounded by men that want to be godly. And sometimes they're one and the same. It's a good point. Thank you. Number six, a man should expect that God will treat his wife as a precious treasure, and so should he. Again, a man should expect that God will treat his wife as a precious treasure, and so should he. The biggest problem that men have in marriage, and I am speaking of myself, is that we are more polite to strangers. We are more forgiving of the lost. That we are more gracious to our neighbors than we are to our wife. It's shameful. We had an American president who whenever he was in the presence of his wife, was holding her hand. And it was stunning. The media went ballistic, that he was so caring and affectionate physically, while maintaining demeanor with his wife. Their relationship was so close. He would hold her hand whenever she was nearby. What a great lesson for us. Especially in business. Number seven. A man should be aware of what type of wife will be pleasing to his father. A man should be aware of what type of wife will be pleasing to his father. This doesn't mean that a man needs to marry a woman like his dad would like. But the scripture is clear so many times of men that married against their father's desires. And the blessing of a father in marriage is so important. It really is. Also, I mean, I think it's also important for the daughters to marry men who their fathers as well. 
I agree with you. Um, but I, I think that we look at two different sides of the coin when we do that. I don't disagree at all with what you're saying. But I come from the perspective that a man, and we're going to get to this one in a minute, is going to be taking a wife. It's, he's the initiator. And when he does so, we see that Esau deliberately took wives that would displease his parents. This is what the wicked do. And I think that's my perspective here from a, uh, a caring perspective, from uh, an obedient daughter perspective, and, and all of that, no question. Uh, but I'm speaking to men who are going to be leaders and take charge. And it's also common in our modern society for women to be the aggressors in that Precisely. relationship. Yeah, flip-flop, the whole role thing. Right. You're exactly right. Exactly. It's going to get burned, and you're going to get mad, and it's not going to be good. So that kind of concept. In a similar sense, then, I think it behooves us as, as husbands to um, put our wives in positions to succeed with our family. Amen. Um, both giving them insights into kind of what our families expect. Um, what they like, what pleases them. Exactly. As well as, and it's really important, I think, to speak highly of one's wife at all times, especially around... Amen. Amen. And this is the one time that I can think of. One time where a man would deliberately withhold truth from another man. How my wife is in certain areas is absolutely none of your business or concern, and you will never hear it from my lips. And it doesn't matter if I'm talking to you or to my very own father of blessed memory. It's just not appropriate. To your point, if I've married a woman who will please my father, who is pleasing to my father, then I've already placed her in a good position to please my father. That's great. Good point. We are all coming from the premise that the Father is a foundation. When the Father is not a foundation, I don't necessarily know that that is as high on the top shelf as... I I hear you. Um, I think as a principle, it works regardless. Because even if your Father is not a believer... Would he rather you marry a hussy, a prostitute, or a godly woman? I agree. But he won't value. That's not your problem. The principle still is there. I would agree with the foundational principle you're talking about. And that's as far as you can go. Especially if there's not a a history of generational faithfulness prior to your generation. As the 
guy, you know what your father finds appealing, finds good, what he would want to find in a wife. And I think or despicable. Or despicable. And I think it's possible then to find ways to speak about your wife highly enough in those areas. In other words, um, you know, let's say if your if your father believes that a woman should be a very strong and capable woman, you know, describing her ability to run a home or whether she's in the workforce or not, is is a way to win her points, as it were, you in bet. the eyes of your father. Yeah. I, and I think to your point, to start her off in negative numbers at the beginning of the marriage is is, is a poor decision. To do the best you can to give her a, a leg up. You bet. Okay. But, but the, the original presumption that you, uh, that you voiced is true. I mean, the premise is that we have a patriarchal faith and it, it is passed from father to son and so forth. I, I'm, I'm living, I live that annually in my own household because my father is not the foundation. And I am actually pulling the rest of the family with me, elders and youngers. And so, unfortunately, I've had the ungraceful times. Sure. I've had to say, this is the way it is. Sure. And many of us feel your pain. The bottom line, though, is it's the next generation we're looking to. And the next generation will look back. And then we see the beginning of that multi-generational faithfulness. And they know in whom lies the patriarch. Good. This one appeared so many times I actually ran out of space to put the references. Number eight. A man should provide for his wife to sit when possible. You thought it was just chivalrous. It's throughout the Tanakh. It's not just polite. A man should provide for his wife to sit when possible. You've got all kinds. Okay. All right. So here, here's no. You want you want a you want a real world or biblical? Okay. Um, Jacob put his wives on camels. Joseph put his wives and children into the caravan that they might go visit Joseph. When Joseph returned, again, he put them on the camels. Esau, the wicked one, put his family, his wives onto donkeys. I mean, I can go on and on. It's just over and over and over again where godly men and the ungodly are going out of their way to provide for their wives in this regard. Now, I'll give you a real-world example. You get onto uh, the uh, highway and you drive down to uh, Chattanooga. It's a, it's a new place. And, uh, and you're going to go on a tour with your, with your bride of this lovely uh, city. And uh, you're walking around and you're uh, seeing the shops and you decide that you'll take the city bus to the other side of town to look at the shops over there and you get on the bus. It's full. 
Well, if you're by yourself, you're just going to grab that pole and hold on. Is that what you're going to do for your wife? Are you just going to take her hand and put it up on that pole? No. No, you're going to find some young whippersnapper like this and say, excuse me, my wife needs a seat. And you're going to get her a seat on that bus. Why? You're darn right. <laughs> it's a mini iPad, right. Um, it's called a sneaky peat holster, by the way. That's right. I, I, think, I think that you build... I think you build points in your marriage when your wife realizes that you're willing to find appropriate accommodation for her. And this has got to be one of the smallest ones, but I see it as repeated so many times in the scriptures that God wants us to remember the principle. It's so important. And it's so simple. God's going to provide a young man on that bus who is waiting to be chivalrous and rise for your bride. And he probably just needs an opportunity and perhaps a reminder. And here you are, the reminder. You said it was a smaller thing than the bigger thing. You bet. It is. And especially in our culture where the, the big things are so very out of sorts and so difficult because they're so odd. Throwing, you know, pulling your coat off and throwing it on a mud puddle. So can, I mean, you know, it just doesn't happen anymore, right? Yeah, and those potholes, what are you going to do, right? But it is those little things. You know, you... You hold, you hold the door open at the bank so she can walk in and she deliberately goes to a different door because you happen to pick the woman's liver. I, I know what you're saying, and you're exactly right. It's the little things. I, I would definitely even rephrase it to say a man should provide in all manner comfort for his wife because I've, I've definitely, like, I, I, as, as men, we, I feel like we don't notice those little things as much. Like, I mean... If I was staying at a hotel by myself, I'd probably end up with like one of those six-person bunk beds, you know, the most unusual, you know, yeah, hostel. yeah, Tough sure, places, it, you know, a youth like hostel. Just because you're not because you can't, yeah. And I, I realized, and um, even uh, an example was usually if I'm driving downtown, I will park like miles away to park sure. for free. Huff it, baby. Yeah, <laughs> and I realized, you know, that doesn't work when your wife is in heels. Um, so it's just like that forethought exactly. is a new thing in marriage. Like exactly. I, I can't be thinking that, yeah, I'll just rough it. You know, it's like, wait, no, it's not about me, it's about her. Exactly right. And even to pull up where you're going and allowing her to get out. Yeah, it's, it's exactly. Right, yeah. you know, you blew it. Pulling up and then getting out and opening the door for her so she can get out. That was yeah. a suit. Of course it was. Thank you. Good job. Quick recovery. That's good. That's. That's exactly right. So doing that, and then going and parking whoever along the way. Now you come out from dinner, and it's pouring rain. Sweetie, stay here. As a matter of fact, here's a tent spot. Go get some, some port 
and drink that while I go get the car. Yes, sir. I think your example, your example is really good. I know you're not going for cause and effect, yeah. but, but our wives see things, in the, like you talk about little things. Yes. They see things like that. Men are pragmatists. They generally just want to cut to the chase on everything. We don't like engaging people and asking for things. We just don't. Ask for directions? No, I can figure it out. Right. You know? Can I have a seat? No. You know, if a guy didn't give me a seat, I'm not going to take a seat. Right. You know? It's just it's too much effort. Right. When we do those things, when we go to that effort to embarrass ourselves in order for their comfort, that's like over the top. You bet. It's exactly right. The, the marital plus points we get are extraordinary. You bet he is. And he can't find a spot. Yes. And, and I do want you to notice that she did ride down from Nazareth. He did allow her a seat. Donkey's not transportation. Even if they were, does it discount it? Yes, sir. Explicit and expected. Right. Which are uh, proper shelter. Right. You know, uh, food and conjugal rights. And those are the three minimum obligations we are required under under Torah. Uh, and then, of course, I mean, all these other things are certainly implied and, and valuable and and of course, I would say the apostolic scriptures make explicit another commandment that's, that's implied throughout the Tanakh, which is we are commanded to love our wives. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, they are not commanded to love us. So. Yeah. And I, I personally think it's because they naturally will love us, in spite of us. They will love us. But we are idiots, and we normally will not. That's right. That's exactly right. So, good. Good points. Okay, number nine. A man should not oppress his wife. A man should not oppress his wife. I've not seen this uh, in healthy marriages at all. And I've not seen it even in okay marriages uh, in my years. Uh, but as I've had opportunity to, uh, to do some marital counseling uh, in the church, um, as men, sometimes we get out of balance between the, the strength we need to show in certain areas and allowing that to bleed into other areas. And oppressing our wives emotionally or God forbid physically is just not an example that we should set for our children nor will it be healthy nor will it be consistent with the scripture number 10 
A man should realize taking another man's wife is wicked and a sin against God. Now you laugh. You know I'm up to Joseph, obviously. But I've always noticed that Joseph's uh, retort, as it were, to Potiphar's wife was not just, oh my goodness, I mean, to sleep with my employer's wife is, is really stupid. I mean, that's probably where I would have been coming from. I mean, this is, I mean, you're really, really pretty, but this is stupid. This is really, this is dumb. This is a dumb idea. None of that came to his mind. That was not his, his focus. His focus was twofold. One, it's a sin. Good. Got the big ten. I like that. But further, it was something that was strictly a sin against God. So he would be paralleling the life of the wicked, and he would be sinning against God. Forget the boss. It didn't even enter into the equation. And I think that if we could remember that, when we're being tempted by the attractive woman in any situation, I just assume they're all married. The pretty girl behind the checkout counter, the pretty girl named fill in the blank. You know, I just assume she's, she's married. And right away what goes through my head is, this is wicked! And it's a sin against God. Now, I can tell you that in moments of extraordinary temptation, which normally has to do with the dress habits of the cashier, I will sometimes yell out the word wicked. (laughs) Just as a reminder. (laughs) Yes. Some of them actually take it as a compliment. And I have no idea what's going there, but yeah. yeah. Yes. Everyone's married. That's, there it is. It's a good job. That's right. Number 11, a man should recognize the power of his wife's influence. A man should recognize the power of his wife's influence. Now, those of you who are married know that we're not just talking about the influence that they might be able to have over others, but also the influence that they have over us. So we'll talk about uh, the first one. It is true that if our marriage is healthy, there is no question who is leading the family. And yet, as God has provided ample evidence in his scripture, historically, it's the second in command that appears to have the most influence Who was in charge of Egypt? Who had the most influence? Joseph. I can go on and on. It's the same way in real life. President of the company, normally, he said, what? What's? Just a figurehead. It's the second guy. He's making matters happen. He's the guy, by the way, that also goes to jail. Yeah. So anyway, um, second in command, normally most influential. But I think we also need to remember that our wives have a tremendous influence over us. They can make or break our spirit. 
And hopefully, we've gone through the first 10 appropriately so that they're on our side and we're encouraging that so that when they influence us, you know, sweetie, I like it so much better when you wear the blue shirt rather than the green shirt with the blue pants. The influence can be subtle. It can also be, I hate that man. I hope you never let him come back in here. You're certainly not going to hire him, are you? Well, I don't know, sweetie. I was uh, actually thinking of offering him a spot tomorrow. But uh, now that you say that, uh, why, why, do you th- why, why do you hate him? Uh, oh, I just think he's evil. I just, I, I just feel so bad. I feel like he's looking me over. I hate that. I'm uncomfortable when he's in the room. Would you hire the guy? I don't think so. Yes. Um, What we don't often realize is that an unrighteous woman has the same influence. Ah, Different story, though. The unrighteous woman? No. (laughs) Sorry. Go ahead. Amen. 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 It's the mouth of God. Yeah. Yeah. And I just know God's speaking to me. Oh yeah. Right? Yeah. I, I can uh, I can attest to that and amen it. Um, normally, though, I'm not quite as uh, spiritual as you, so uh, God will speak through my wife, who obviously is listening, <laughs> and uh, she shares that with me, and I'm like, really? Hmm. And three days later, yeah, God uh, God speaks to me and confirms what she has said. I agree. And not to shun it and not to push it away. You need to embrace it. It's a good thing. Amen. And uh, I think over the years, a godly woman, yeah. But yeah. Even if she's not, this is that symbiotic one flesh relationship we're talking about. Even if she's not, if you are, you responding in the proper way to her influence will change her. Amen. That's true. Um, but assuming that we've got the godly wife, uh, I think you're right. And I, I, can, I can document to you the number of times where my godly wife has influenced me or attempted to influence me in a certain way, not even deliberately. And I have, and I have completely avoided it. Yes. Yeah. I can, I can tell you when I've, I've deliberately disregarded her counsel and... <laughs> I'm such an idiot. So yeah, I, I I agree. If if we were to order these as married men, th- they would not be in this order. 
and, and the influence is extraordinary. But again, we go back to that one about recognizing our wives as a treasure. Uh, it's, it's almost like those guys that owned the woman that could prophesy. She could tell them. She could fortune tell, right? Yeah, she's, she's got it, you know. She can nail it. And these guys are making mega bucks. And it got torqued out when those apostles came to town. I hate that. Well, the sages in looking at that shit, this is one of the main issues that they come up with is the power that she has to basically cause you to obey God. And, and like I say, I, you know, I'm not limiting it only to the godly woman, although that's the best. Yeah. Even the ungodly woman, if we are responding to our wives properly, God will use her over anything else. Damn it. Life. That's true. And I think some of the some of the coolest and most most heart endearing stories from the sages are those that involve the sage's wife and her influence and effect on his life. And we remember that he is a sage. That's right. Right. And right. we right. and we may not have if it weren't for the wife. Who, if I recall correctly, couldn't read when he wanted to marry his wife. And as a condition, I guess, either upon their marriage or to get them to marry, yeah. the, the chronology of it, but she wanted to become a Torah scholar. Yeah. At one point, he had like 20,000 disciples. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh. I'm sorry, I'm Akiva. Akiva, yeah. No, no pressure, right? Uh, and Akiva was just dumb as a stone and yeah. stepped up. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was four guys that were captured. Yes, and his, I mean, I don't know if you guys remember, we, this came up in a class. Yeah, 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 two years ago. But uh, the sages were going from someplace to someplace, and they're on a ship in the Mediterranean. ship gets taken over by pirates. Pirates, pirates yeah. And they've got the, 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 this rabbi and his wife who was traveling with him. They've got, uh, they've got them tied up and whatever. And then they basically say, you know, start threatening to do certain things to his wife in front of him, right? Yeah. And the wife turns to her, her husband. <laughs> That's a theological question. And the question was something about, you know, what does yeah. the time say? To commit suicide, yeah. Yeah. Overboard. And over the, yeah, overboard, and, and she drowns in order to prevent, you know, being violated. Violated. Yeah. You know, and, and, and having put, putting not only herself through that, but putting her husband through that as well. I mean. Yeah. Oh boy! Yeah, yeah. Well, how many? If you've if you've seen Firefox, you know the you know the the guy who is uh, who's getting him in there. I'm not a Jew, Mister Gant, but my wife is. They do terrible things to her in the prison. I'm just trying to live up to. Uh, yeah, Whew, man. Oh man. Yeah, it's a good example. Thank you. 
We're halfway. We're halfway here. Number 12. A man should treat his wife as a gift. A man should treat his wife as a gift. And I, I have this one as different than the earlier one. That he should recognize that God sees her as a treasure. A treasure has great value to everyone. A gift is extraordinarily important to the receiver of the gift. Number 13 appears 60 times. I had 42 references written down before I gave up and thought, it's just stupid to try and put down every reference. Number 13, a man should recognize that he is taking a wife who is another man's daughter. Now you can see that from two different perspectives. But a man should recognize that he is taking a wife who is another man's daughter. This speaks of two different men. It speaks of the the son-in-law because clearly throughout the scripture, as I said, over 60 times, a man takes a wife. And we need to recognize that it's our responsibility to step up and take the wife. And we need to be prepared to step up to make that action viable. There's a whole class there. But on the other side, God willing and by His grace, you'll all have the opportunity um, to have uh, the opportunity to give a daughter in marriage, it is incumbent upon us as men to raise daughters that will be these influential wives of which we just spoke. And there's a whole responsibility and, and teaching and understanding on that side. So i got two different sides here. But we need to recognize that. Oh, here's a man who took one. Well, I I was just going to say, I think it's really cool how the last two actually relate. Mm -hmm. I mean, not only is my wife a gift from God, but she was a gift from you. Well... I cared for her all her life, and then... Let's let's put, put her back into the treasure category. I didn't give her as a gift. You earned her. Number 14, a man should recognize that his daughter's choice for a husband can affect her faith and halakha. Number 14, a man should recognize that his daughter's choice for a husband can affect her faith and halakha. Because, make no mistake, 
she's going to practice her husband's faith. And we need to recognize that. Because for a certain part of her life, she's going to practice your faith. And at some point, she's going to express that it's her own faith. But we need to to recognize, as men, we need to recognize that. Yes, you are. My daughter. Sure. And uh, just to let you guys know, if you don't... Uh, last summer? Yeah, last summer my daughter got married, and they met in the church, grew up together in the church, basically had the same faith and everything, and, and outlook and, and biblical understanding. Then you guys came along. <laughs> <laughs> so it is all your fault. But now, uh, but now uh, uh, you know, we started studying... For obedience and started buying, you know, bought into it, praise God, and and studied, and, and, and she fought and fought, and then I've told you several times the stories that, you know, she grabbed a building stone thing and read it on an airplane and changed like that almost overnight. So uh, they have gotten married, and this is up to today, it's still an ongoing thing because she has to. He is the leader of the house, and Amen. she has to follow him. Amen. And but this is an ongoing discussion. It's the rub. Because, and you know we're trying to just guide her and lead her and help her. You know, just say, hey, continue to live out, live out, live this out, Amen. and pray for him. Amen. And, uh, and it's tough for her. It's because of course she's it a is. Very black and white person and very strong will. You bet. She wants him to jump on board right now. Right. And, but it, but you know the beauty, Jerry, is that in the end, when several years have passed perhaps, she will have been able to demonstrate such influence for godliness in her husband's life that he will be so grateful and so honoring of her in public forums that he will sound like some of the men in this room And they will have a marriage that's so tight that they truly will be one flesh, regardless of circumstance, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and so forth. It's a great thing. And it may be the thing that God needs to use to to assist with some aspects of her character that needs some polishing and working in his life in a way that will make him strong. And and, and I I totally, I am totally 100% agree with that because we're starting to see bits and pieces of that. Because, you know, they've only been married nine months, right. and she's only been kind of studying this for a year, right. year and a half. Right. And so, right. continue to live it. She's already shown other, you know, people are now questioning and looking at her, and and he is seeing that. And so, he's come on board a little bit and stuff like that. But anyway, that, that's that's such a great point on here because uh, because it's amazing that we're living this right Amen. now. And so, uh, Amen. But I think it's all positive. Praise God. Yes, sir. Um, I think one thing is important within that concept you just discussed is recognizing your role in um, helping the guy. One of the things that I found impressive watching you um, with 
or one of your other, well, soon-to-be son-in-law, um, is that three years ago, Isaac was not practicing your faith, or a faith that you, really at all. Um, what I thought was most impressive was that you did not turn him down automatically forever based on that, but that you simply recognized that he was on he was not an option until he was he did have a relationship with God and he was practicing a faith um, that he could lead your daughter in. And so you gave him a step by step process to reach that. Um, I think that's really helpful, especially you know I'm sure there are many guys in this room. You've got a pretty girl is a really good influence. Um, but what also I thought was powerful was the way that it worked with Isaac is he changed before he got the girl. That's right. So that now, I was talking to Juliana, I think it is so cool to watch Isaac and Christine and see Isaac now is wanting to do more things. He's coming to us to learn about the marriage contract, the ketubah. Right. You know, he's the one almost who's initiating, wanting to do more in their family. He's the one who's looking at Greg and Morgan and their child of, you know, wanting to have kids at sooner or whatever, maybe, you know, it's like he's changing yeah. his own approach to his faith, yeah. and he's taking it personally. And so I think that, um, I guess my point in saying that is, it's helpful not necessarily to rule somebody out, but to know what does this guy need to be before he can be eligible. Amen. My, my desire and my goal, thank you, Joshua, um, um, yeah. um, I think I, I think he probably would have said the same thing if he were here tonight. Um, uh, my my desire and goal is to is to see every man in this room either an example to my own son or desirable to my own daughters. Because my son and my and my daughters seek godliness, so. We're all in this, it puts us all on the same sheet of music. That's exactly right, man. That's exactly right. So it's worked so far. Right? That's right. We'll know for sure when it stops. That's right. No reason for the tiny class. We're done. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. Wait. Girls show up. Hey, you know what? I'm going to have grandsons sitting next to you guys. That's right. Number 15. Number 15. Number 15. A man should keep his mouth shut about another man's wife. A man should keep his mouth shut about another man's wife. And I've got the reference, baby, let me tell you. Yeah, I can't disagree. But biblically, no question. How your wife acts in a certain circumstance, what your wife wears on a certain day, what your wife says, what your wife does. That's not my purview. I got my wife. My hands are full. You paddle your own canoe. A man should keep his mouth shut about another man's wife. I hear you. Number 16. A man should recognize his role as protector 
and listen carefully when his wife or daughter speaks. A man should recognize his role as protector and listen carefully when his wife or daughter speaks. If you're following along mentally in the Torah, you know that I'm up to the part that describes that in the day that a man hears of a vow that his wife or daughter makes, he can annul the vow. But only in the day that he hears of it. Ah, we've got to bring that to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Lost your chance, baby. I think that prayer thing needs to speed up just a little bit. Maybe you can keep an open channel. Have you got the direct line? I've got one here. We are to protect our daughters and our wives. And it is absolutely unique in the scripture. And the feminists in our culture cannot argue with this in any way. Because it is unique. And it's absolutely extraordinary. When the rest of the Bible is replete with your yes being yes and your no being no, and you said it, I swear to my own death, it has to happen. But not if you're a wife or a daughter in the day that the man hears of it. That's an amazing responsibility. On that day, and say, I, I don't think so. No, you're not. Now, for those listening in Gastonia and parts of far off, um, and we do want to uh, say hi to Tom in Myrtle Beach, who uh, left a comment this week. Um, I, I think it's important to recognize that it's very clear that whatever consequences there are, fall on us. It's not like it just goes away. Any consequences are on us. But you know what? That's why we're the guy, not the girl. You don't want the consequences? Wear a skirt. I'm kidding. Yeah, it's too late. Don't wear a skirt. <laughs> That's not a skirt. <laughs> I don't know what's funnier, the way you said that, or picturing him in a kilt. Number 18, again, throughout the scriptures. Oh, did I skip one? 17. Oh, oh, I beg your pardon. Number 17, which is very important. <laughs> ah, number 17. A man must recognize his role as his daughter's protector does not end when she marries. Out of the 25 that I wrote, out of the 25 that I studied, out of the 25 that I dug into, 
this one, I must admit, was a shock. I have taught my sons-in-law that as they develop their relationship with my daughters, that our roles need to change and that my role as protector, provider, um, the be-all and end-all, the guy who makes the rules, etc., changes. And when they get engaged, it's an opportunity, while there's still a stable environment and protection, is an opportunity for the man to step up and to begin to display his prowess at being a man, to be the leader of his home, to be the teacher, the provider, the protector, etc. Um, and while all that is true, in my mind, I mentally thought the protection side is over. I did hedge my bet waiting for the marriage date, thinking, though, done. It turns out that that is not biblical, that is not correct, that is a lie. And the fact of the matter is, as we learn in the scripture, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, that a man must recognize his role as his daughter's protector does not end when she marries. That in fact, if a worthless man has taken her as his wife, that still a man must step up because God is not one to leave his children unprotected. Number 18, and again throughout the scripture from Joshua all the way to Malachi, a man must acknowledge that marrying outside the faith is great evil and treachery against God. A man must acknowledge that marrying outside the faith is great evil and treachery against God. Bernie Kofsky was my father's best friend when I was a boy. He was a New York City fireman like my father. The uh, Irish men in those days were the lieutenants and uh, uh, the officers in the fire department, and the Italians and the Jews were the, uh, the grunts, your basic firefighters. They're the guys hanging off the back of the fire truck, and the lieutenants are up in the front. The, uh, the American Indians were the... Uh, the workers that were out on the uh, I-beams and all that because they were pigeon-toed and could, you know, wouldn't fall over and all that. At least that's what my dad told me. So. Um, but anyway, those, uh, those categorizations you know, uh, seem to have uh, fallen by the wayside. And uh, I really don't know what the uh, original nationality of many of, uh, of my friends are, except my, my, my friend the Scott, who um, obviously were... That's right, yeah. So, uh, so anyways, uh, Bernie, uh, Bernie impressed my father. The Italian section of Brooklyn borders the Jewish section of Brooklyn. And the last house in the Italian section in Brooklyn, Bake Parkway and 80th Street, was my father's house. And it was right next door to a Jewish couple, an older Jewish couple. And my father would go by every Friday afternoon and turn on their lights for them. I heard that story as a boy, and it really didn't mean a whole lot. 
And now it has a sort of resonance. And think of it fondly. Bernie came into work one day and his blue fire department uniform shirt he had on a black band. My father said, who died? My daughter, he said. Your daughter died? I didn't even know she was sick. What happened? I don't want to talk about it. It took all day. After several fires, alarms, and calls, they were, uh, they were sitting in the break room at the firehouse, Francis Lewis Boulevard. And Bernie shared that his daughter had actually married a Gentile outside the faith. And because of that, she was dead to him. My father came home. He worked three nights on, two nights off. Three days on, three days off. So his schedule was always kind of weird. But he was always home for a couple of days in a row. And when he came home that time, I even at this age remember that he was very quiet. He was sad for Bernie. But at the same time, he seemed to have a real deep respect for the man and his faith. That it meant so much to him that would break family ties. And in an Italian home, you pretty much got to kill somebody to break the family ties. (laughs) And even then. (laughs) Sometimes that's straight. (laughs) Depends on who you kill. Okay. (laughs) Number 18. A man must acknowledge that marrying outside the faith is great evil and treachery against God. I think that's an important one. And I think that it's one that we we want to remember as dads. And, you know, we watch Fiddle Around the Roof and we get to that fourth daughter and it's like, uh, I mean, are you kidding? He doesn't even speak Hebrew. I mean, he's, he's not even, oh my goodness. So, what is your view of define inside faith? <laughs> one son, one daughter left. Okay, <laughs> just um. Um, I'm going to suppose that your your question would revolve around one of my children marrying a Jew rather than a believer in Messiah. Who doesn't keep the Torah? He does not. Oh. Uh, 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 
Is that the one you were thinking? Really? You were thinking of the first one? Yeah, I was thinking of the first one because I think the odds of the second one in my life are almost zero. I mean, you guys are sitting in my living room. Yeah, um, that's a great question, and uh, you're a troublemaker, and I love you for it. Um, okay, so I would say uh, I would say let's start with my daughter. My daughter Mary um, is not going to, at her request, is not going to marry a man who doesn't get past me. And uh, I just, if a, if a godly man shows up, I would want to work diligently on his godliness uh, and hope that he's a Bible scholar. And I would work with everything I've got to try and get him to spend a lot of time with you. So, uh, <clears throat> I don't think it's a possibility with my daughter. Now, I've come to understand over the years now that my role in my son's marriage is decidedly less involved. And... Uh, And my father said uh, said some things to me when I was five years old that I can remember today like it was yesterday. So you'll pardon me if I'm careful with my words right now. Um, but I would... When it comes to my... I would accept any woman that he felt was a good match. I love you to death. Thank you so much. What a great segue. Yes. Um, I, I don't know that there's anything I can do but teach my son um, what I would think to be the right way to go. Um, if, uh, if my son were to marry a woman that didn't keep the Torah, um, I think I would be surprised. Um, but if he chose to make that choice, I'd back him 100%. If he chose to marry a woman outside the faith that did not know Messiah, I would... I would strongly discourage him. I would make it clear to him that he would not have my blessing. But again, I think the chances of that, like you were saying, are, are, are far less um, available. Did that answer your question? Well, there, there has been discussion about that, yeah, which... Uh, from what I understand, it's a tougher gauntlet than getting past me. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. From what I understand, talking to the girls, that has no bearing on it. So, do you have a biscuit recipe? You don't have a biscuit recipe. You can't make scones? Yeah. 
Good. It's an excellent question. I hated it, but it was an excellent question. Number 19. A man should remember that his disobedience toward God can and probably will affect his wife. (laughs) A man should remember that his disobedience toward God can and probably will affect his wife. And I think Rick has reminded this congregation on a number of times that not only does our, our, corporately, our men here in the room, our obedience to God bless the community, but our sin affects the community. And if it affects the community, gentlemen, the scripture is clear. You can mark it down. You can take it to the bank. Your sin, your disobedience can and probably will affect your wife. And if you've gone through reflecting that your wife is a gift or is a treasure, maybe it's just yet another reason not to sin. Number 20. A man should remember and remind his wife that they are bound as long as they both shall live. A man should remember and remind his wife that they are bound as long as they both shall live. Now, I'm not going to talk about fidelity, longevity, or anything like that. Even the world knows that stuff. No, I'm talking about the flip side there, where men make these egregious demands of their wives. When I die, make sure you don't marry another man. When you're dead... You're dead. Depending on the strength of the marriage, this could be a caveat towards not murdering. Perhaps I think it was a was it Ruth Graham was asked once by Tom. She was like, "And in your many years of marriage, have you ever considered divorce?" Like divorce, no. Murder, yes, yeah. She's good. She is good. Okay. Number twenty-one. A man should remember that his wife is looking for ways to please him. A man should remember that his wife is looking for ways to please him. This is right from the scripture. It's built in genetically, and it is also a command. If that's the case, men, it would behoove you to give her ways to find them. I speak not as one who has arrived. Number 22. Yes, sir. Please. Um, Would that be making, for example, things you'd like to see in the home clear? Is there other ways, dropping hints? What exactly do you mean by... How to do it, I think, is a separate class in and of itself. Um, but But I do think that we need to recognize that if that's a motivation on their part, then we should, A, on the one hand, be clever and use that motivation as a means of teaching and guiding, and on the other hand, not be a jerk, and be communicative as, you know, we in this room, of course, are want to be loquacious about our desires and needs, so let us share that with our spouses. Fabulous. 
Amen. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. Does that make sense? Number 22, we're almost done. A man should end his engagement and marry sooner if he cannot control his passions. I think it's it is. Like you kind of reach something of a dead end there as far as where you can go with the relationship in every way, including authority and, and communication and a whole bunch of things. The longer that drags out, the longer your relationship stagnates. Yeah, I agree. And the less healthy it becomes. Yes. Um, by this time, if there's been some healthy interaction prior to it, by this time, you should be able to demonstrate your side of the deal within a couple of weeks, in my mind. Um, on the 8th of October in 1982, I asked my wife to marry me on my knee. Are you writing this down? Um, on the 8th of October in 1983, we married. Wouldn't recommend that. Here is a very long time. It is a long time. It's a biblical model of betrothal and marriage is totally different than our model in Western cultures with engagement. Because the biblical model of betrothal is one of a type of marriage that is that does not permit any alone time. Right. So you're always with someone else. Which is the point of the universe. Which is exactly what we see in the Godfather. Yeah, absolutely. Isaac and Rebecca. How long did it take by camp? She, by the way, even the servant found an opportunity for her to sit down. <laughs> Wild she, she did fall off, but that was at the end. Yes. <laughs> All right, let's go here. Um, 23, a man should teach his wife that bearing children and managing the household is a noble and high calling. Now, that's probably not a real big problem in this room. But I tell you, gentlemen, that the culture is doing everything it can to destroy that notion in your wife's mind and in her heart. At every turn, at every corner, in every store, the culture is trying to belittle her and make her seem less than the noble and valiant woman that she is. That's why we need to teach that. Three men, go. Three married men, thank you. On the non-spiritual economic, practical side of things. Yes. Because of the value of the services my wife performs for 
my household, I've made the decision, I literally made a decision to take out life insurance on her. Because when I added up oh, yeah. all of oh, my. the money I would need to pay out if she, God forbid, was no longer here, yes. then it's, it's, it's easily six figures a year. Yeah. Easily. Yeah. I haven't done that because Mary's going to cover. Well, yeah. You're good for a while, right? But then, you know, that's good. Yes, indeed. Yes, sir. That's right. He's done the financial books. Sure. Child, yeah. And they just give you, yes, you can have it all. Yeah. And do the whole outside the home, the whole everything. You bet. It, it, it's at every turn. And, and the things that are insidious are the ones that you and I don't recognize immediately. They're the little drop tints. They're the little, oh, you stay at home. You, God bless you, dear. Yes. You know, you just want to, I'm sorry, are you turning blue because I'm holding on to your throat? <laughs> A real life experience with this because my wife is a very is a corporate attorney that was raised in a phone and a home that says you can do everything a man can do. Right. So, and which I, is true. By the way. I actually, Women actually, could do better. There yeah. I yeah. So much exceptions. Yeah, I wanna. I, I want to. And that's not the point. Yeah, I would refute that. I would say that women can do everything men can do, and then some. <laughs> I can't bear children. Well, some of them can. <laughs> but anyway, my point is, is that you know that the, her idea of when when we're going to have kids and stuff, she goes, "I will hire a nanny and I will hire a housekeeper because the and I and I would smile and say, uh, I believe you're going to be a great mother, and you know you're going to do these things that." You know, the, the Bible talks about it, and she was like, no, no, no. And it was just amazing to see the transformation of her. And, I, and to me, it was all God but that transformed her from being this corporate, I can do everything, I'll yeah. hire somebody to do it to, nobody's going to touch my children, yeah. and I will take care of my own home. Praise God. And it was an amazing thing to see. But, but And I'm not patting myself on the back. My whole outlook was is to just stay positive about the thing, pray for her, yeah. and let God, you know, carry her down the road. But it Amen. It was just amazing. It was amazing. Thing Praise God. Did. It was. And, and, we, and we can rejoice with you. Um, when my daughter Morgan, uh, who is, uh, am I allowed to tell everybody about that? Yes. My daughter Morgan, who's, who's pregnant with uh, her second child now, uh, my second grandchild, Thank you, thank you. Um, when she was in kindergarten and had first started at Bible Baptist Christian School over on Ottawa there, or uh, Margaret Wallace, um, I, uh, I had this notion that it would be really good to avoid the culture indoctrination and homeschool our children. And I came home one day and, and you know, Morgan was... You know, playing around on the floor in the dining room over there. We didn't have a dining room table at that time. And we were just laying on our backs and kind of playing with the, with the baby. And uh, 
the, the baby, of course, was Juliana. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Morgan's kind of toddling around and walking around. And, uh, and I, I suggested, you know, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe we could homeschool. And she made it clear in no uncertain terms. The Lord would have to come back before homeschooling was an option here. And uh, pretty cool. Pretty cool. Yeah. Ain't never going to happen. There it is. Amen. And, uh, you know, the neat part is that I didn't bring it up again. All I did was commit it to prayer. And one day she looked at me and she goes, what do you think if we homeschool Morgan and don't send her back for first grade? I don't know, sweetie. Do you think we can do that? I mean, (laughs) bam! secretary. She is my, you know, five-star chef. She is everything that we need to run our house to make my life as easy as possible. Amen. All I have to do is provide an income and make all the hard decisions, and I can leave all the rest of the stuff to her. That's it, and you get equipped for ministry. Now, you might want to talk to him about the life insurance opportunity there. (laughs) So, I mean, I think that It is. <laughs> it is. And it is. I, I know. Yes. I just want to add to all this. Um, my, my mother, as I understood it, has similar experience. She was an airline stewardess. And a good one, too. And a really yeah, good one. Flight attendant. Okay, at the time it was stewardess. <laughs> <laughs> actually, actually, when she was hunting, It was stewardess, yeah. yeah. You bet. Like 20 years later. Exactly. Wait. wait. She's she'll be. She, yeah. yeah. She, she'll, she will be. She'll be homeschooling her grandchildren. Yeah. Praise God. Number 24. A man should remember that his marriage is an example to all of God's faithfulness. And as such, we need to be faithful. A man should remember that his marriage is an example to all of God's faithfulness. God in his word chooses only three examples that I know of, of his love for us and his relationship that he desires with us. The first one, of course, is marriage between a man and a woman. What's the second one? Father and son. And the third and last one? Yes, sir. A shepherd with his sheep. That's it. Those are the, those are the primary examples. He may use the, uh, the, uh, the guy who owns the vineyard and some other stuff, but it's not as much the relationship. And that's it. 
So, no pressure, man. And number 25, a man should take care to prepare himself for marriage as his faithful wife is doing the same. A man should take care to prepare himself for marriage as his faithful wife is doing the same. And I think that I'm preaching to the choir when it comes to that particular notion here. Um, This went a little bit longer than I had anticipated, uh, but I am glad for the interaction and the uh, input. Um, These 25 things come directly from the Scripture. Uh, They're not homilies that I've come up with out of my own marriage. Uh, They're not examples that I've seen in in the marriages in our community, Uh, although they are. Um, These are from the Scripture. These are the biblical models for us as men. And I think we should take them to heart and we should, uh, we should hold one another accountable to them. The reason I brought these up is because of the uh, Defense of Marriage Act, Proposition 8 for California. Proposition 8 was voted on by the people of California deciding that uh, they felt that the uh, institution of marriage was between a man and a woman, actually, in the most liberal state in our country. And um, it's now uh, potentially going to be stricken uh, or vacated by the Supreme Court. <clears throat> so I thought that um, we could close by just having just a few comments um, about uh, DOMA and Proposition 8. And I'll go ahead and open and uh, hopefully shock you with my perspective um, which I've, I've shared here before. Do you know what Webster's definition of license is? Do you know? Permission. Permission for what? To do something that... Um, I'm struggling with that because I don't think that a God-given right should have to have a license. Well, um, I can't disagree with you at all. Um, but we, we want to thank John Calvin for pushing um, the church at large and all the denominations following suit in getting the civil government involved in the affairs of religion. Um, it was because primarily his pushing that, that the civil government is involved. The definition of license is permission to do something which is illegal. That's why James Bond has a license to kill. My my son, who's five years old, can't drive because he doesn't have a license to drive. Therefore, for him to drive is illegal. It's against the law. So if you believe that you need that getting married would be against the law, then you need a license to marry. I disagree with this whole notion. Adjectives are the bane of our society of late, it seems. Immigration is a legal and noble thing, 
we are all immigrants, somehow, some way, no matter how far back you go. My dad was very proud to be an American. My grandparents came over here on a boat. They went to Ellis Island. You can look it up. It took them a long time to learn English. And my grandmother was pretty shaken, let me tell you. So when they stood there and were able to swear allegiance to this country, having learned to do that in English and demonstrate that proficiency, they were pretty proud. They had made the cut. They were immigrants. Gentlemen, there is no such thing as an illegal immigrant. You either are an immigrant, which is a legal status, or you're a criminal. But you cannot be an illegal immigrant. There is no such thing. Here's another example for you, just to get the point home. (laughs) Assault weapon. No such thing. Assault is a verb. It's not an adjective. An assault weapon is a figment of some woman in California's imagination. There is no such thing as an assault weapon. There is committing assault, and there is a weapon. But there's no such thing as an assault weapon. Homosexual marriage. There is no such thing. There is marriage. And it has a definition. And it has nothing to do with civil government. Homosexual marriage is a figment. There is no such thing. Now, what are we going to do about that? I believe the time has passed. All we can do is just like with our wives, ensure that we are very clear what we believe and why, and then live that example. When we hear someone say, I'm really against this illegal immigration thing. We need to stop them. And we need to teach. We need to give an account for the language that is within us. And we need to share. Oh, I'm sorry. You, who told you that? Did you hear that in Geraldo? No, no, no. There's no such thing as illegal immigration. There are invaders. They're criminals. And there are immigrants And I'm the proud second generation of immigrants who came to this country. And I think that our borders should be replete with wonderful immigrants who want to come to this country. But of course, we can't have proper immigration unless we know who's coming in and who's going out. It's the same thing with marriage. When we speak of marriage as being redefined, why is this so important? Can anyone tell me? Why is it so important that it be redefined? There's only one reason, and it's a biblical reason, and it doesn't have to do with sin. And it surely doesn't have to do with homosexuality. Why is it so important that marriage be redefined? Anybody? No? No? Money. It's all about money. You see, 
because you have marital status, you get certain papal rights. Oh no, from a biblical point of view, there's no redefinition. Why does the culture want to redefine it? Money. In fact, that is why the, that is why the case came before the Supreme Court. Because this soldier, when he died, when, when this soldier died, his death benefits could not be paid to the person with whom the soldier was living. Because it wasn't his spouse. That's why. It's all about money. Not the point, although true. So now why would we get involved in arguing about the redefinition? Gentlemen, that's a smokescreen. What's the root cause? A desire for money. Now, quite frankly, I think they're right. I don't think that this woman should be denied those benefits. Now, fortunately, our system of laws already provides a way that she could get all those benefits. But her spouse who died chose not to take care of that. Hmm, problem there. But it's certainly not a Supreme Court issue. But the issue is not redefining marriage. The issue really is, should married couples receive a financial incentive? That's a different question. I believe with all my heart that married couples, a man and a woman, raising a family is ultimately the best for society. I believe that with all my heart. I think it's demonstrable. But I don't think that there should be a monetary benefit for it. Because that's not constitutional to begin with, if you want to go back to the original constitution. So if we remove the marital benefit the whole redefinition issue goes away. The problem is, now we're talking about your, well, your taxes, and your taxes, and your taxes, and your taxes, and your taxes. But quite frankly, the only reason why we got to this point in the first place is because Mr. Calvin demanded that government be involved in the affairs of religion and the practice of our faith. I've actually had more than one of my sons-in-law ask me, what's more important to you? The religious ceremony or when we go to the courthouse and get that document that says we're married? And the answer, at least from that man and from this man, was clear. Are you nuts? Who gives two hoots what the, what the country says about whether you're married or not? 
get under the chuppah and get married before the community and before the eyes of God. Then you're married. That's exactly right. It was a week before. You're not, yeah, married. You're not married yet. That's exactly right. So, I mean, it, it's We're a... Conf- still planning on getting back. Of, of course, yes, yes. It's okay. Yes, that's right, yeah. So anyway, uh, gentlemen, that's my take on it. Um, I think that we could change the course of our nation if we would just back up and recognize that as much as we hear in the media that there should be a separation of church and state. Perhaps there's some wisdom in jumping on that bandwagon for a little bit and cleaning up some of the mess and just getting religion completely out of the deal because it would avoid the redefinition of some of the aspects that I hold pretty near and dear. You think about that. I, I, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Again, what we're doing is we're bringing religiousness into the affairs of state. Now, I understand that the separation of church and state is a non-existent clause and is not what's there. But we all know, if we've been studying constitutional law, the concept was that the state would not have its own religion that would be forced upon us. Gentlemen, the state does have its own religion, and it is forced upon us. And it's taught to our kids every day in public school. It's called evolution, secular humanism. It's already there. There's already a state religion. We blew that part already. And all we did was step away and go, I'm not doing that crap. I'm teaching my kids on my own, which is a noble thing. I've done it. But we really do need to get our religion away from those people and let them paddle their own canoe. And the 5013Cs, I agree, should go. I'm done. Let's pray. Good Father, we thank you for your blessings upon our country thus far. We pray that despite our sin, you would be lenient with us. That as we see so many things happening in our country that have happened in so many other countries, in the past, and have caused their downfall. I pray, Father, that again you would be gracious with us, that men and women of faith would wise up, that we would be wise as serpents, Father, and yet gentle as doves. We have no argument with those that need and desire equality, financial security. Father, these are the people for whom you died. And we should love them as you did, with a selfless love, caring for them. Father, I pray that we would be wise beyond our years, and that you would hold back your wrath for our sin. And we pray, Father, that uh, the next generation would be wiser. And we're able to quickly and decisively articulate the way in which people should walk. And the government that would best provide that. I thank you for these men, Father. I pray especially for the ones who have not 
married yet, that you would give them great wisdom, that you would help them to look at these 25 points, that they would turn to their fathers, that they would look for wise counsel, that they would seek to prepare themselves, and that they would burn into their hearts indelibly those things that they must memorize and teach and remember. We pray these things, Father. B'Shem Yeshua HaMashiach, Adonai, in the name of Yeshua the Messiah and our Lord. And all these men said, Amen. Thank you, gentlemen.